Welcome to By the Sword, where we discuss the modern study of historical European martial arts, or HEMA, with instructors, experts and martial artists from all over the world. In this episode, I talk to special education teacher and fencer Katie Zold about neurodivergence in the HEMA community. We talk about how we can help each other better, both as students and instructors. The episode was recorded on Instagram Live, 17 July 2022. Excellent. So, Miss Katie, uh, Katie's old, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be to be on your show. This is yeah. Awesome. Because you approached me and said, you know, I'd love to talk about learning and neurodiversity um, amongst adults, because you work with kids, obviously, Uh, uh, you're a teacher. Um, So as a topic, this is going to interest a lot of people, I think, both as students and as instructors. I think this is really going to be worth listening to. Um, so, uh, this is just a question that I didn't brief you on, but it was thrown to me. Like, is it true that there are neurotypicals in HEMA or is that just a myth? Um, I, I am almost <laughs> convinced that's a myth because <laughs> what, what niche hobby, uh, would have neurotypicals like please <laughs> swords and, and history and no, no, that's, that's total myth. I'm here to dispel that right now no, everybody's <laughs> a little bit strange in HEMA that could be the whole podcast just done yeah <laughs> completely so I normally uh start when I start out interviewing folks I ask them you know what's your HEMA backstory but I'm gonna ask you you got two backstories so first of all um what led you to work in special education how did that happen so it's going to sound very strange, but even as a very young, young uh, girl, I wanted to be a special ed teacher before I knew what that was. Hmm. I, um, before we were inclus- inclusive of people with special needs in schooling, like really early on, I went to a program where it was half and half. So there were half typical students and half um, students with special needs. And it was a preschool program. And I kept telling my mother when I'd come home, I just want to take care of them. Like, I just want to take care of all these kids. Um, and so I think that it was just something from very early on, I became very sensitive to, and just had this overwhelming feeling to work with people who just need a little extra love, need a little extra help. Um, so that's kind of what brought me in. And of course, um, throughout my, you know, building my career, building my schooling, I did anything I could to really work with that population and to, um, you know, just build that skill set. I've tried really hard to work with a variety of uh, disabilities. So I know, you know, a little bit of everything. And um, yeah, it was really just, I, I, it's so lame to say like it was a calling, but I genuinely think if I were three or four years old in preschool knowing, oh, I so badly want to be this kind of person, it must be. Uh, my preschool teacher ended up working with me at one point, which must have been bonkers for her. Um, And she said, I always knew, even when you were four, that you were going to be a mother and a special ed teacher just by the way you would interact with other people. So it was really cool for her to see 
that come um, full circle. But so yeah, that's that's where I came in uh, into that. I went to Southern Connecticut State University, which is like a really really well known school for special ed, and they gave me a really great um, background in that too. So that's how I came to be a special ed teacher. So when you were a little girl working with well working with being a student alongside uh, kids with special needs, what was it that made you think? I want to help them. Was it like, was it, was it kind of a sense that there is something that I can do me personally, I can do for them? Or was it, you could just see that they were struggling and you just wanted to help out? Honestly, I think by nature, I'm just kind of a nurturer or like a caretaker. Um, in these classes, there were students who were um, exhibiting different behaviors that you wouldn't normally see in a classroom. I remember very clearly a boy who would bark and, um, I went home and said, mom, you know, a boy barks like a dog. And she goes, oh, were you playing, you know, animals? And I said, no, he just barks like a dog. So I don't know if it was like, oh, I need to be the savior, you know, like this yeah. complex, a little complex I've had since. I think it was more like, wow, these are really interesting people. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I always joke with my friends because I am dual certified. I can teach both regular ed and special ed, but I want nothing to do with regular ed because it's boring to me. So I think part of it was just, I, I think people who are a little different, surprise why I'm in HEMA, are just <laughs> more, more like interesting. They're just, they add something to life. They're, uh, the preschool teacher that I ended up working with had this beautiful quote and it's something I've kept with me since I started my career, which was, and she's a religious person. So, I mean, try to take a side if you're not, a religious person, she goes, you know, God may take away something from these children or these students, but he always adds something extra special to make up for it. Now, whether or not you're religious or not, I think you can just, if you put that in a regular context, yes, there might be something missing or something different, but there's always, always something to just absolutely love about that population, that person, like anybody else. And on the flip side, everyone can still be a jerk if <laughs> like, I'm not trying to excuse that either. Um, but that's kind of, you know, like, I, I just always felt like this is an interesting population. I love people who bring, you know, something interesting to the table. So I think that's really where it was. It wasn't like a weird, I must save these people. I think it yeah. was mostly just, um, you know, caring. And um, even throughout my schooling as a student, anyone who is different, be it uh, special needs or their sexuality or the way that they presented themselves. I always was kind of this person like, hey, like, leave them alone. Uh, I, you know, they're I just like very accepting. It's always been kind of my goal to have everyone feel accepted, whether, you know, no matter what you identify as or what you are presenting with. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that also kind of played a role in that, too. So it's kind of like a caring curiosity about people. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's a perfect way to put it. Yes. And uh, you could say uh, partially that is that how you got into HEMA? Was it the same kind of interest in the folks or was it just swords? <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, it was definitely the people. I discovered HEMA at Long Point. I went with um, one of my best friends, Kat Fanning, um, just to watch her she she said oh come on vacation with me because I was having a very bad year I was going through a divorce it just was not good um, she goes come with me and check out 
the hot European guys who will have swords. And I was like, sign <laughs> me up. Um, <laughs> and I went to Long Point and I was like, okay. And I fully intended on just kind of like watching her do her thing and then go and sit in the spa like as a vacation. But I ended up sitting in the ballroom watching everybody fight for hours and hours and I was fascinated. And what really sold me was, I mean, the swords were super cool, but that was always Kat's thing. It was kind of like not my thing at the time, um, but just the people, everybody just immediately accepted me. And that's something I think all of us it, as humans, but especially neurodivergent humans and weirdos, as I like to lovingly call us, um, definitely want to have that welcoming, be a part of us family vibe. And that's what I got from HEMA. And that's what really made me say, you know what, I really need this. I need the support system and these really bad, you know, like strong, bad, bad, I don't know if I can swear on here, but like, you can swear really... that. Okay. okay, I wasn't sure. I was trying to be like <laughs> PG, like these badass warrior people yeah. who are just so strong seeming. And at that time I needed to feel strong. So it was just such a cool group of people. So yeah, it's a hundred percent, right. I wanted to get to know everybody. I could hear their backstories. I love how HEMA unites like the world, you know, how I've met you and all these people throughout the world, everybody of different walks of life. One of my favorite things to ask at tournaments is like, what do you do for work? Because mm. there's so many different types of people in HEMA mm. and, um, and I just love the, how different everyone is so yeah it, it really links right there with that yeah like you could you can be fencing a, a barrister like a, or a, a judge or, yeah. a, or or a street sweeper or you know uh, a, a programmer or a scientist you know it's just it's just so so diverse there's like so many different people I mean there's a lot of people who work in IT in HEMA as well. Uh. Yes, I've noticed that. Um, Ex-military is a big thing too, yeah. um, which makes a lot of sense. But yeah, IT and, uh, and military seem to be the main, main focus. I, I swing dance as well, and I've noticed that most swing dancers are scientists and physicists. Oh, really? So, yes, at least where I, I mean, I swing, out of, swing dance out of Yale, so maybe that's just the area. But um, I think groups are definitely, definitely attract certain types of people absolutely sure. and uh now you're a as we said you're you're working with uh kids special educational needs i think you said emotionally mm -hmm. kids with emotional disturbances things like that yep. are a range of, of issues what kind of educational needs are you working with in your day-to-day -day, in your day job so my day job right now is um i i started i was like the uh, I was introduced as this new program. It's a therapeutic special ed room. It is for students in middle school, so sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, um, about 12 to 14 or 15 years old. Students that have emotional disturbance, mental illness, severe anxiety, depression, suicidal ideations, um, really, really mental health heavy. But a lot of those um, students have a comorbidity of um, autism or other neurodivergent ADHD is a huge, uh, huge part of that as well. So it, it's a little bit of everything, but there's a big emphasis on social emotional learning, uh, therapeutic services. I have an in-house uh, social worker. So the two of us are like a tag team 
Um, and it's a very small group setting because, you know, that way they get the full intention, uh, uh, full attention of us and we can really meet their needs both academically and emotionally. I, uh, I, I've got a good friend who is a art therapist and I remember when she was doing her studying, they talked a lot about um, secondary trauma. Um, yeah. So how does, in the education system, how do you cope with like these kids are traumatized, it affects them. And there's this thing where the people who are working with uh, these, these uh, kids or people or adults are affected and they, they call it secondary trauma. How, how is that uh, managed in your, in your job? So um, it's definitely, I think, I make sure to take care of myself by seeing a therapist. I'm very, <laughs> I try to be very vocal about this to break. We should all do this folks, whether you feel yes. okay. It's or okay to go. Yes, when you're okay to go. Exactly. So I definitely try to um, advocate for that because you don't necessarily need to be mentally ill or in a bad spot just to be uh, seeing a professional. It's a great place just to let go of things without burdening your friends. Mm. I mean, of course, I have uh, friends that I can lean on um, and they'll listen always. Uh, however, it's good to have a professional kind of just go through what you're going through, especially if you are exposed to a lot of traumatic events and you know everyday stress i mean i come home that's another part of my self-care i definitely i have an hour drive in and out of work so i spend a lot of time on that drive doing stuff to decompress trying to get my head on straight and leave work at work um so i can be present at home uh, i try to do something for myself every week about an hour a week do something anything that um and I, tr and my partner, my new partner um, is really good. We kind of laugh together. We'll make jokes, not at the expense of the students, but just make jokes like, oh my God, can you believe that this is happening? Or, you know, who would believe this? Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of like cushioning because there has been some instances even in this past school year where it really, it did mess me up secondary, uh, like a secondary trauma where, you know, I had a student who it was, there was a very, very traumatic, horrible event for that student. And just experiencing that, I, I stepped back and just sobbed because I, you know, it was very traumatizing. So it is really important to see a therapist even when you're well, and Ooh. especially if you're feeling a little down or if you're struggling. Yeah. So that's a big part of it. So yeah, it's like, it's like anything, you don't have to hit rock bottom uh, before uh, you seek help. And, uh, you know, uh, to compare it to like a car or something, you don't, if you only take your car to the mechanic when it's, you know, broken down, you know, you're not going to, it's not going to run very well. You need to, you need to get it checked, checked on frequently. Exactly. Uh, and same, same with your mental health. It's the same thing. You just, just keep things ticking over nicely. Um, so something I wanted to talk to you about, um, was uh, how neurodiversity presents in women. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, I'm not uh, that clued up on autism, but I know in ADHD, uh, the research is only as new as the, the early 2000s, I think, because when they decided to start looking at how it presents in women, which is why I think a lot of women aren't are undiagnosed um just wanted to uh, hear your 
you know your your professional experience of that i definitely agree with that the research is so new um mm. as you said i would say less than 20 years for women mm. um and i really think that most people our age or those of us who are getting older were overlooked as children yeah. because it often presents like a mental illness like anxiety or just being overly sensitive um, I'm going to try really hard to not get on a uh, rant about how we, you know, like force females to be more social. As please, please, can you rant? Because we oh, have okay, loads okay. of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I really think that part of it is because females are so socialized as young, young children, you know, there's a huge push to be chatty and charming and make friendships you know there's a big push to form relationships with people from very of a very young age specifically on uh toward females that you know we don't they tend to present higher at least with um autism uh, they present higher functioning because they are trained to be more social mm -hmm. um social skills do come naturally to people but if you're explicitly told like, oh, act like this, speak like this, you know, carry yourself like this as a female, which I'm sure, I don't know if you experienced that, but I know as a female, I, I definitely was told to act a certain way or carry myself a certain way. Yeah. Uh, I think go, say hi, be nice. Be pleasant, don't argue. Yeah. Um, you know, listen to what you're told, all of that sort of thing. Um, you know, we're overlooked because you're just, you know, you don't have the outward lack of social skills that typically sometimes, I'm not going to say all, I want to definitely preference this with, this is a not all situation. Everybody is very individualized. Um, but, you know, male children aren't, that. there's no emphasis for that on that. And therefore, when they are diagnosed, at least specifically on the spectrum, um, they they do tend to show more social cues that they're missing or social um, uh, they're not as advanced because of the way we treat our male and female presenting children. I'm really curious as we have now um, really progressed with children who are transgender or non-binary. I'm so curious how this will play out in the next 20 or so years as um, as we do more research and there's more testing standards are developed and see if that changes the narrative because I think the most recent numbers is three to one um, males to female diagnosis um, but most of the most of the ways we test and the research has been focused on males even in my own career, it's amazing to get a female in my class. And this coming year, I have more females than males, which is mind blowing. Wow. Um, and it's great. I'm glad that we're, we're finally realizing that, you know, these females are not just anxious or depressed or, you know, any other, because they typically, that's what we wrote them off as, that they do have some deficits that we need to address and support accordingly. Um, I, I found this in, in my research, um, and even in my, in my experience, there's a great, um, sensory processing is very different. It seems like everybody has their own, I mean, I'm sure 
if anyone's neurotypical or uh, neurodivergent on here, if you've ever put on socks and they didn't feel right, that's a sensory processing, you know, thing. If you have to have them feel just so right or your clothes or, you know, if people are talking and you want to rip your skin off, these are all sensory things that both sexes um, definitely experience. However, I, I've read that women or females present more where they can hear colors or feel sounds. These ah. really cool um, sensory... Synesthesia, they call that, don't they? Yes, yes. Synesthesia. Yeah. I, I had um, an interview with a family. Well, it was a girl, girl talking about her family. This was just on the radio. And, and she was saying that, you know how different people's names taste funny? <laughs> yeah. And uh, the person said, what? And, it, and she turned to her sister and said, you know what I mean, don't you? So it's like, yeah, like uh, the name Chloe tastes of butter and uh, sugar and, and like, or flower or the smells of violets or something like that. And like, and, the, and <laughs> it was a really funny thing. Like the whole family, like the sisters and the mum, all had this synesthesia thing where people's names, specifically names, not just words, would have a flavour. Like they taste the the name. And oh it's, my god! Yeah, it was so funny. <laughs> That's so cool. And now I'm wondering, like, all of the people in my life, like, would Tony taste like spaghetti? <laughs> you know, like, oh my god! Now I'm gonna do that from now on just for fun. But yeah, that that is a more female presenting. Um, you know, attribute, whereas I'm sure there are males that have that, but I, I guess more females do. Um, with ADHD, um, there's a lot of executive functioning skills that are, are lacking in both genders. Um, executive functioning in case, you know, I don't know if that's a general, I think that's a general term, but that's just basically how you process things, how you organize things, are you always late to events, you know, whatever. Um, that is present in both sexes. I feel like females are a little more on top of that. I'm not saying they're much better, but I think if you were to line them up side by side, they would show higher skill sets because of the way, again, that we Condition. were conditioned. Yeah. Expectations, um, yeah. Very much so. And a lot of, um, because we were conditioned this way, um, we did well in school. Women typically, you know, like are not diagnosed at the school level and do get this later diagnosis because they, as long as they're doing well in school and they're masking how they act, there's, there's not as much of a, like a lookout for that. Mm -hmm. I know as a teacher, there are so many things, even as a general ed teacher, a regular teacher that, that you're looking for in your students to know, hey, does the student need more help? Do they need more support? Are they struggling? And you know, there's kind of like a mental checklist you go through and I feel that there was always a big push, like, why is this little boy unable to sit in his seat? Well, he must have ADHD. There was never looking at the little girl who was also maybe clicking her pen a lot or, you know, like fidgeting in her seat. Or looking out the window. Right. You, you were just like, oh, she's thinking. Whereas yeah. I feel uh, with a male child, you would be like, oh, wait a minute. Like, you know, let's get them tested. Um, and of course, now I've been teaching for almost 15 years now. So it has been changing. There's definitely a change in the narrative. There's a push, you know, to look at all students, especially right now, post COVID, there's a lot of looking at mental health and social emotional. So I'm hoping that with this new push, we'll catch more 
people earlier on so we can assist them so mm -hmm. people don't feel the need to mask and follow you know other people like they can be their authentic selves and get the support they need early on instead of a late diagnosis which can definitely impact a lot you know if you can get that early on you can get the services needed um the 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 venn diagram of gifted children and anxious adults is just a circle basically isn't it <laughs> it really is and i love i love the humor that we can all have i mean i would hope that other other uh neurodivergent folks can can laugh a little bit you're, you can step back and be like yeah this makes sense it's definitely a circle i think that there's a lot of pressure um and that could even pull pull into the idea of like why some folks who are neurodivergent have like this you know like if you were gifted as a student you're like constantly anxious now because you have to live up to the hype that you were you were pushed into as a child so yeah, yeah that that definitely is a circle of just you know keeping keeping up your appearances and having this immense pressure you know not only from yourself but probably from people around you or just like oh did I, did I peak when I was younger um for sure it's one big circle or it feels like it at least now now people who might be cynical about all these new diagnoses like like they might be thinking hang on hang on we can't all we can't all be neurodivergent can we? why is everyone you know why is everyone adhd why is everyone autistic all of a sudden that you know you're <laughs> all just looking for a, a reason to you know complain or or uh you know put something to pigeonhole yourself something to blame your behavior on or your your anxiety whatever just you know pull yourself together there's no there's no need for all this nonsense but like you said it the reason we need these diagnoses for people is so that they can put down that anxiety and stop thinking what is wrong with me so they can go ah oh, that's what it is and this is what i need to cope with it and this is how i can be me and myself right and not have to pretend all the time that I'm something else. I also think if the more, like I love uh, the, how the internet has really impacted this. I know TikTok has definitely in and of itself uh, has diagnosed me a lot has, and apparently thinks that I'm a black lesbian who's neurodivergent <laughs> for some reason, according to, the, according to their algorithm, but that's fine. Um, but outside of that, yes, I can see where people are like, oh, yeah, everybody has ADHD right now. Is it because yeah. we all played Sega Genesis so close to the television in the 90s? Like, <laughs> was it the amount of high C that we all drink? I don't know if you have that um, in England, but like, you know, is it our food? There's a lot of people who want to just be like, whatever. But I think the more that we kind of unite and the more people come to the realization that they do have some kind of neurodivergency, that they might need a little help here or there, um, the more we can actually drive research, I think. Um, because especially as women getting not, uh, not as diagnosed as much as men, still to this day, we have come far, but we're still lacking in that research um, testing, diagnosing, and, you know, because everybody presents differently. And we do know that, as we were saying, people present differently, depending on their gender. Um, I think the more we can come together, it not only feels better as a community, it feels like, oh, I've found my people, 
I found yeah. a way to like connect or understand myself better, it definitely can drive if we all argue like, hey, we're all experiencing this particular thing, like maybe that needs to be adjusted or hey, a massive group of females or even female presenting people do this, why is it? Let's research that more. So I, I think the naysayers or the people who are like, oh my God, get over it. I, they don't understand that the, the power of community and how soothing to the soul that can be. I have a friend who was diagnosed, um, I don't wanna like expose their diagnoses, but they, they received a very late diagnosis. Um, and they're in their late, 30s and it was so eye-opening to what they had been going through for all of their life why did they act like this why did they feel like this and it really changed who they were they suffered from depression and mm -hmm. it kind of negated that a little bit because they didn't feel lost anymore they didn't feel strange or out of place because they found that it was common in you know, coming in people, they found support groups uh, and other people. So I think that that's definitely a huge pro to being able to identify yourself and find others who identify the same way. And mm -hmm. anyone who has a problem with that, well, they can go find other people who uh, also have their heads up their asses and they can form their own group and just let other people live. <laughs> like, I'm so tired of people crapping all over other people just because they find something that helps them. Like, mm -hmm. I, went, I went to the store the other day and I was stoked that there's Halloween stuff out and the cashier was like, Halloween isn't until October. And I was like, can you not? Like, <laughs> let, let's let people just live and let find a happy enjoy things. Yes, let people enjoy things and let people connect with each other. I think sometimes people are afraid of that because they're afraid that that could change things. Yes. And who cares if it does? Like, maybe we need to change. Maybe we need to be more a more accommodating and accepting world for people who aren't your cookie cutter average person. Now, there's nothing wrong with those people either. But if you need a little step of some sort, so let, so be it. Let's let's get everybody on the same step, or at least as close to it as we can. Absolutely. Like the more I learn about neurodiversity, the more I think an average person doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, you 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 led me nicely onto the next question, which is late diagnosis advice for adults. Brackets me. Uh, <laughs> when like like my child my youngest child uh he was having uh issues uh when he was in primary school with behavior uh, and development and uh, the school he was in uh, they didn't you know they kept complaining about him calling me in he won't do this he won't do that parents evening was a nightmare i i got really bad anxiety going in because it felt like i was in the dock kind of thing and uh, i was like oh my god i've got a naughty kid and um and then he started getting bullied and uh we yoinked him out of there and we put him into the school that his older sibling was in and i went to the next uh parents even with in the new school and i was like oh here we go and the teacher was just like i really like teaching your son he's amazing look at all this writing he's done i was like have you got the right kid <laughs> and it was mine <laughs> are you sure that's mine and it was it was because the teacher was 
engaged with him and was working with him. She was brilliant, but also she was the one who said, I think he may have ADHD. You might want to get that diagnosed. And I was like, ah, that's what's going on. And then he's it's like- more than just naughtiness. Yeah, he's, he's just bored. <laughs> this class is not fun and he's having a really rough time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, with the correct teacher, he did reams of creative writing, whereas the previous school said he couldn't even hold a pen properly. Um, and so, yeah, like he got an he got a ADHD diagnosis, which meant that the staff in the school could support him. And he had a much better time uh, than he had in the previous school. And now he's into secondary school. It's it's the same. He's got uh, some really wonderful uh, SEM uh guys and girls working with him and it's kind of like made me focus on myself and I'm sure I'm not the only parent who's been down this this road where you've had a child who's been diagnosed uh, with either ADHD or autism or, or some other kind of learning uh, issue that's affecting their schoolwork I'm not going to call it a problem it's just I the way I see it is that they are just everybody's different everyone's mind works differently they've got a different kind of um program running um, and it's kind of made me go well what about me is this is this because it's usually from the mother usually inherit it from the mother uh adhd so i'm thinking and, and i'm starting to like you say social media does really make like you look at yourself and go well like you answer all these quizzes and stuff it's like i think that's me like i am the the, the gifted kid who is now an anxious adult and uh, I do feel terrible imposter syndrome when I'm doing a live stream like this like what right do I have to be here what the hell <laughs> well you definitely have every right to be here because you're brilliant <laughs> and um yeah it is it does it does make us kind of reflect on our own our own journey in school I do think yeah. that um teachers I mean as a teacher even if I if before I became a teacher teachers really can make or break a student yeah. Um, just as you were saying, like the one school where they're, oh, he can't even hold a pen. And then he gets into the right program and he's writing, you know, beautiful creative writing. I think teachers definitely, this is, um, you know, this is our reason for being in the classroom. Yes, obviously give the academics, you know, and, and teach, but you, you need to find a way to connect with your students genuinely and look at them in different lenses. I have a, I, I, I have a very, I'm gonna pull it back because I don't know who's watching this, but I have worked with people who are just so uh, one size fits all to their students. Everybody is the same. Why can't your students do the same as these students? Not realizing that not everybody is the same. Not everybody is developed the same. And we all have different skill sets. The typical student has different, you know, you have kids who are better with math than they are with reading and science instead of social studies. It, it, everybody is very different. So I think as teachers, it's so crucial to look at each student individually and not generalize overall. Yes, have high standards for everyone. Um, definitely have the expectation that they can do work, but to their ability and meet them where they're at. So, um, sorry, your, your point about your son just really like kind of triggered me a little no, bit. No, no, so, it. yeah. it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear as a parent, 
um, you know, you feel guilty. You feel like, oh my God, why is my kid the one that's having a hard time? Mm -hmm. I know parents I've worked with always feel so um, upset and embarrassed if their student does any, if their child does anything. Um, mm -hmm. And a teacher, a teacher who knows what they're doing, not that I know what I'm doing, I'm faking it, but <laughs> is able to step back and say, this is not the child this is the disability or this is you know what they're working on i don't like saying the disability i like to say this is why we're here you're mm -hmm. in special ed you're getting an extra support because you need it and yeah. that's why this thing happened it's not because you're a bad person or because you're not you know a naughty kid or it's because you're asking for help and that's why we're here mm -hmm. um and as far as adults go yeah i think it's very eye-opening um, I also think that there's a huge shift in the way we look at people who need extra support. Um, mm -hmm. I, my third grade teacher, and I'm ancient, if you couldn't tell by my wisdom glitter up here, um, my third grade teacher is like, I can't believe that there's all of this, you know, autism and ADHD. Like back in the day, we just said they were dumb and like kept it rolling. Um, yeah. That's not a direct quote. She's a lovely person. But she was saying like, you know, back in the day, they didn't, we didn't have support. We didn't look at people as needing anything extra. It should be everybody open to this page, do your work and shut up. Yeah. Um, so I think as adults, we're kind of shifting that narrative of looking not only at our, at our children, but at ourselves like, hey, wait, maybe I struggled in this area or maybe I'm an anxious adult because I was an overachiever. So I think it, it is very eye-opening. And as a late diagnosis, if you do go get a diagnosis, which sometimes can be hard, again, especially as women, but in general, it can be challenging. There are a lot of positives to that. Not only are you kind of validating yourself. Yes, I have some kind of thing that I've struggled with or something that makes me a little different. Um, but you can connect, as we were talking about, find other people who might even have tips, tricks, you know, stories, something that makes you not only feel validated, but something you can use as a resource or a support. And um, if you're employed by someone or in school, like you're in uh, college or university, even as a high school student, which is a little late, because typically, we, you know, ideally you want to diagnose as early as possible because the more early intervention, the better, you know, outcome you have. But as a late diagnosis, you can get accommodations and modifications um even in your workplace like you might need help it's there's there's a lot that you can get if you look into what you need um and even making your own accommodations if you learn that you know every time you're, you're late to something because you have bad or poor executive functioning skills you're going to start learning ways to adapt to that you put a timer on or you know like you leave yourself post-it notes or you have a giant calendar on your refrigerator. So there's ways to accommodate for yourself too. And it's, and it helps you become a little more organized or, you know, you know that when you're in the middle of a HEMA class, you might need to step outside and, and regulate yourself and mm -hmm. then come back into instruction. Um, there's all sorts of things you can do to accommodate yourself or have others help accommodate you. Um, especially like if we're going back to HEMA, tell your instructor, Hey, I need it quiet when you're going over the, the newest drill, because if somebody's even whispering down the line here, it's, I can't focus. 
Um, or maybe like, hey, can I work with this, you know, this person because I feel more comfortable. There's things we can just communicate, which is really important to do so we can accommodate. Yeah, and, and it can be hard for people to put their hand up and say, I need this, these are my needs. Especially if they've been conditioned their whole life to just fit in. Uh, yes. That feels like being rude or difficult or a problem and you don't want to, you know, rock the boat kind of thing. But if the instructor of a class um, sets that out, like you are free to ask me for whatever it is you need, uh, and I'll do my best to accommodate you. Just just give people that space to ask, uh, to 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 just so they can learn to their best of their ability. I I gave a seminar last weekend, and there was this lovely lady called Bon. I hope she doesn't mind me naming her. And uh, she described herself as neuro spicy, and <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and she was brilliant because when I was talking. Uh, and, and demonstrating a drill she said can i can i stand behind you because i i understand it better i can't mirror i can't see someone from the front and understand the movement i have to be behind them and, and um copy what they're doing from the same point of view and i was like yeah absolutely fine stand where you need to stand uh and if you don't if you want me to come over and show you again because if, if i'm not in a place where you can stand behind me i can show you again it's so just that little bit of thing like i just need to have need to see it this way or i just need this bit of information to help it sink in absolutely fine um and that's that's lovely i mean it's nice when people feel free to do that put their hand up and say i need to do this than you having to go around and go are you okay is this all right for you is this all right for you kind of thing uh, are you understanding this? Did you get what I said? Why, you know, why are you doing yeah. this? Yeah, yeah. Checking people's understanding. But oh my goodness, it is forty-eight minutes into the chat. Uh, so I'm going to say, folks at home uh, who are watching us uh, right now, uh, it's not showing me seven of you, um, or anyone who joins. If you have a question for Katie, whether it's about learning, neurodiversity, uh, mental health, HEMA tournaments any kind of stuff you want to ask katie uh please if you look at the bottom of your phone screen you'll see that little speech bubble with a question mark in it just hit that and enter your question and we will answer it but i'm just going to scroll through now because i can see people have been saying stuff in the comments IT and uh, Rune Zero says, IT and VET, checking all the boxes over here, Lamau. Yeah, <laughs> we're saying about so many people in IT, so many people, uh, uh, ex-services who are in HEMA, and that's both. Pusteble uh, me, do you think intensive media can... Consum consumption is impacting ADHD, ADHS as well. Just as the thought of an early con consumption is impacting the development of the brain and neuron connection. What, ooh, I mean, we, we've got a generation of kids now. I'm thinking about my kids who are Gen Z, who were brought up on iPads, basically. Uh, they had access to you know, touchscreen technology from a very young age. Yeah. You, in your professional opinion, what do you think? How do you think that will impact that generation? I am fascinated 
to see how this impacts students and children. Um, even as a stepmom myself, I have a nine-year-old and yes. it is world's different to see, you know, like if we want to watch, have a family movie night, she has a really hard time watching. Whereas like, you know, when we were nine, I'm sure it was very easy to, um, to watch a movie. Uh, interesting fact. So we have this test early on in kindergarten. Um, so I started my career in kindergarten. Now I've moved up to middle school. Um, it's called Concepts of Print. And it really, it's very early on. It's basically to see if students can like hold a book, if they know to read, write to left, you know, like however, do they know where, what the title page, the front cover, back cover, et cetera. Now that test includes, uh, one, of the, one of the factors of that test was, can they hold a book appropriately? Meaning like, Ooh. do they open it up? Now, one of the tests is, can they do this? Which is to widen the uh, zoom in which is just and now this has happened in my own career which 15 almost ish years that's not a long time to progress from can someone hold a book to can they zoom in yeah um so that's really i do feel that there is going to be some kind of repercussions um with the brain i'm not a scientist i would love to be a scientist and and research this more um I do, I do think that the, like, children being on tablets, on, on TikTok all day, like, you know, 30 seconds or less, that's it. That's all you get. Um, I do think it is going, we're going to see a huge increase in the ability to focus and the stamina to focus on non-preferred things. Mm. Um, obviously, if we're, if we're talking neurospicy, which is the new word I'm going to use, um, <laughs> we hyper focus, right? That's like yeah. a huge component of having ADHD typically is like you have your special interests. And this also falls under the autism, you know, you have your special interests, and you hyper focus on them. But I feel like outside of that, the the amount of social media and just devices will impact how we how we function because we are so used to that quick instinct, you know, we're gonna have a hard time focusing. Yeah. For sure. Cause like, cause social media is just dopamine all the time. Or yes. give me some like, like, like that's something like uh, kids with ADHD or people with ADHD lack dopamine. Mm -hmm. uh, and anything that gives that to you, like whether it's addiction, whether it's uh, social media or whatever it is, it's just, you know, being able to access the things you want quickly. Yep. Uh, you know, feed yeah. yeah. So I definitely think that will impact how we function, how we interact with each other. Uh, I was explaining last weekend to our 15-year-old and our 9-year-old how in the 90s, like, you didn't have social media. And if you wanted to see your friends, you had to go, like, to their house or maybe yeah. call their landline. And it was mind-blowing. <laughs> um, so I think, I think having all of this at our fingertips is just going to rewire our brains a bit, just like us as adults. I mean, I know I, I can't leave the house now without my phone because I need it for the GPS. Yeah. Or I need it in case, like, I'm at the store and I have a coupon or whatever. Um, I think we are. It's definitely, we're going to see a huge impact of it, I want to say, in the next 10 to 20 years. I, I'm very curious how it's going to play out. Yeah. Um, let's see what else we've got in here. Uh, Monocled Marnie says, do you have sites or books you recommend to parents or fellow adults with new diagnoses? Um. I don't have it off the top of my head right now, but I can definitely get you a, a 
compiled list um, if you want to give that to your um, wh whoever needs it I can compile a list of sites and uh, maybe we can link it somehow um, yeah a story or something for sure yeah, we, can do, we can put that in the stories thank you Katie like thanks for the suggestion uh, Monocle Marnie we will collaborate and come up with something so that folks can use those resources uh Postable me sorry i'm german <laughs> i'm still struggling with terms and grammar that's fine i understood it was all good um right there's a question in the question box let's open it up ah yeah it's just what monocle marnie asked before uh do either of you have reputable sources so yeah we will katie and i we will put our heads together and we will uh, put some some links up somewhere either in a in a post or in a story so that you can access that. Um, I'm just gonna ask you, um, I've got two more questions here. Okay. Um, now this is like, for, this is specific to HEMA. What should we be aware of as students learning HEMA for ourselves and for our colleagues? So when it comes to neurodiversity, us uh, folks learning HEMA, I'm, I'm, th I'm thinking now from the perspective of a, of a neurotypical person, like how can we be good training partners for our new neurodiverse uh, pals? Yeah, I love that um, that question. I think that it's really important that we're patient above all, mm -hmm. um, remembering that not everybody learns as fast or as um, clearly. I know there have been instances even in myself, learning a new drill or a task or something where my brain knows what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to cast it out this way or do it that way or turn or whatever. But for some reason, my body is just not doing it right away. And it's very, very frustrating. So um, as a partner, a neurotypical partner, definitely just try to be patient. I think um, sometimes we think we're being good coaches by giving a lot of feedback and at the same time, that could be very overwhelming for a neurodivergent person who's already trying to process what they're doing, uh, going over the steps in their mind, and now getting feedback and trying to, um, you know, add that in. So maybe holding off feedback till the end of the session could be a, a, a benefit to your um, if coaches, um, partners, instructors. They can definitely do almost like hand over hand or physical guidance, but obviously you definitely want to communicate with your partner and make sure that um, they're comfortable with this. Uh, the, the, for instructors or for students, if you're working together side by side or sh doing it at a different angle, approaching it at a different angle, letting somebody stand behind you um, or in front of you or whatever, is is really helpful as well positive reinforcement goes a long way too. like hey you did awesome that was exactly what you were supposed to do um cool. or just or just like giving them that time and then coming to tell them yeah you you're doing this right but i think really watching how much we talk while we're doing something um and and doing it after also um I have, I have notes on like for both instructors and students, but as students, I think the biggest thing is try to just remember that, you know, everybody is, is doing what they can and, and try not to like jump down your partner's throat if, if they mess up or, you know, they're not quite on, on board like you are. Um, being, being patient is huge. Yeah. 
I think I think the unsolicited advice is a whole other podcast. I think. <laughs> oh boy! Yes. Yes. Oh yes. And it, but it's uh, but uh, on a on a to keep it on on brand uh, for a neurodiver neurospicy person having somebody constantly talk to you while you're trying to process is too many things going on at once. It's like too many cooks yeah. in the kitchen. So um, I think, I think kind of being quiet and then afterward have a conversation so they can attend to it uh, fully. They're not trying to do more than one thing at once. Cause sometimes that's overwhelming. Yeah. I think being, um, you know, there's that conditioning that's like, you have to be nice to everyone and accommodate them. It's like, you know, I have to indulge this person who's constantly talking at me and just scrambling my brain and, and interfering with the signal that I'm trying to sort of deal with from the right. teacher or, or just myself where I'm just trying to process information. You know, it's, it's having boundaries, I think, where you can say, can you just let me do this uh, on my own? And then we can talk about it afterwards. It's just having that confidence. Yes. Just giving yourself that permission, I should say. Mm -hmm. to just be that direct with someone and not feel like you're being a burden or a, or a problematic person just by just by having that requirement. Um, and maybe maybe before even beginning having a conversation or setting expectations, um, before you even begin drilling, I'm thinking of like partner drills, especially with people who are on the spectrum. I, I used to train with a, another person who was on the spectrum, having very clear cut conversations in the beginning having expectations like hey we're not going to hit too hard we're going to really mm. watch how hard we're hitting is uh is very is very beneficial because sometimes um especially socially we can get lost in what we need to do so if you have a very clear-cut conversation before even beginning it might open the door for those types of of you know exchanges to go about so you can exchange swords much mm. easy, much more easily I always say to people when we're doing free play, I don't call it sparring, I call it free play. Uh, I say, uh, set expectations with your training partner, indicate the where what target areas you want to go for, where you have padding, where you don't, how hard you want to hit, show them, this is how hard I want us to hit each other. And, right. then, and then begin, because people will have very different ideas about what is, uh, what is acceptable um and then you know feelings and literal bodies are going to get hurt um got some questions popping up in here uh monocle marnie how does your bg influence your teaching style slash drill demos in class i don't know what bg is do you uh background i think oh background how does your background influence your teaching style do you do you do much teaching uh of hema I do not. Um, when I was in my old club, I tried to do when I could, I would try to be an assistant um, instructor. Um, I have done a few presentations, but overall, um, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm new to I'm not an instructor full time. Um, but it, that's kind of why I wanted to talk about this because I have what I think is some information that would be great for people who are full time instructors. Um, to just be cognizant of. Um, mm. But my background, I did, I remember one time I did get to lead a class because my instructor was out and I was the next next woman in charge. And um, I did use it, I did use my background to really structure it. We did have a pretty structured class as it was, but I added a few other of my own flair, like giving people warning times, 
hey, we're going to practice this drill for 15 minutes. And then at like the five minute mark, hey, we're starting to wrap up. Hey, two more minutes, then we're going to come back. Um, this is a very typical teacher thing to do. But I thought it really kept people on task, kept people, um, you know, like ready to transition. Because Ooh. people who are neurotypical, definite or neurodivergent definitely need sometimes that cue to bring it back. And, yeah. to, and to be ready for that transition. Um, so that that's kind of how my influence, um, you know, even as a HEMA student, um, I, I, I try to use my background in that case, you know, we've had people who are anxious, people who are on the spectrum, and I always tend to partner with them because I know that I do have a, a lot of patience. Um, I know that I can break things down both verbally and visually, which is a really important thing to do for especially people on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I would communicate with my training partners, hey, what works best for you? Um, which I don't think is typical unless it's trained or unless you're told to do this. Um, so that's kind of how my background, like I would even when working as a student, um, I try to incorporate that as a partner so I could be an efficient and effective partner. There's a, there's a kind of assumption uh, that the students might be neurodiverse or highly likely to be neurodiverse as it's HEMA uh, and that the teachers are neurotypical, but the likelihood of that is very slim, I think. <laughs> I, I think so too. Um, I again, we I think we started. You said uh, we broke the myth that anyone in HEMA, uh, what what weirdos are neurotypical in HEMA? That's I want to know that. Um, we should <laughs> we should do some kind of one yet. <laughs> I'm going to do that research and I'll get back to you with the numbers. Um, somehow we'll figure this out. Yeah, I think um, it's not necessarily that the instructors or I, I think we're all kind of like battling something. Or, or, or processing in a different way. And that's the beauty of HEMA. Um, that's why I think it's important that any instructor kind of comes at this, um, approach, approaches drills, approaches content in a multitude of ways. We know yes. that learners are kinesthetic, they're visual. Um, so we want to, I, I think as an instructor, neurospicy or not, you might want to make sure you have visuals. You might want to use rhythm and sounds when you're instructing and explaining something you might want to give different angles hey this is how it looks like from the front from the back stand behind me stand in front of me um using words that really um give an image in the mind like glue your foot to the ground here mm. or cast your sword out like a fishing line mm. um or we i love the one with the string like always think that there's a string at the end of your sword that has to go out first. Like there's all these ideas that we can do that benefit everybody. And, uh, and they don't, you know, somebody who's neurotypical is not going to not benefit from it either. I think yes. it can help everybody. So um, I think, you know, it's not always just neurotypical people teaching. I think neurospicy people are. As neurospicy well. people are definitely doing the teaching. Oh um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Which is another reason why I think it's important that we can, if possible, get a diagnosis. Because then at least you know, uh, ah, I'm ADHD or oh, I am autistic, which means that I can help people like me uh, and I can represent, you know, I can say it's okay because I'm, I'm like you, I understand. Um, obviously, everybody learns differently, but they won't feel so isolated and, you know, 
you know, different from everybody else because there's neurospiciness everywhere. The spice <laughs> must flow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, me in our club, we are doing a recap round every time after training. How did you feel? It is a very reflected group, so you really can be open. That's great. Oh, I How love that. I think I think club culture um, is so important with and 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 social emotional there too. You know, if you're not going to get your best results if people aren't feeling comfortable or mm -hmm. able to communicate, so that's a beautiful idea. Mm -hmm. um, on the subject, this is my final question. Um, so uh, we've talked about instructors. On the topic of instructors, what should instructors, neurospicy or not? be doing to make their curricula and their learning spaces welcoming to neurodiverse HEMA students? Um, I definitely think we have the, the ability to use the internet to our advantage. Um, so if you have like a Facebook page or some kind of place where you can put materials, make notes like visual with visual pictures or explicit step-by-step -step actions. Um, somebody I was speaking, or I, I kind of asked my friends, like, hey, if you're neurodivergent, what works for you? Um, somebody said checklists even, like, okay, I need six inches here, six oh. inches above my head, et cetera. Um, if you are able to kind of provide that text for students, whether it be a handout or just posted so they can look back at it vis for visual learners. Um, also have a class itinerary so it's predictable so you know what's going on maybe even tell them in advance um, people who are neuro spicy typically like to know what they're going to do to reduce that anxiety mm -hmm. or just prepare for it so if you're able to say hey we're going to go through this this and this this week and do these drills great um, maybe have a predictable class structure so you start every class doing this and then this and you know having partner drills and wrapping up with free play um routine is huge for everybody i think but if that if you have that that's another expected um way to help everybody feel comfortable making sure people are quiet like i said sometimes when like a one one person speaks at a time thing so people can process and really look at what you're doing um, I definitely would ask your students, you know, if they're not comfortable, we were talking about saying like, hey, I need this. Ask students explicitly, what do you need from me as your instructor? What can mm. I best do? I think that builds a huge positive connection and it allows people who might not be as vocal to say, yeah, you know what? I actually need whatever accommodation. Um, so I think that would be huge a huge way to um, connect students. And then finally, giving context. When can you use this drill? Where can you use it? You know, why, why are we using it? We're learning something that we don't use on a daily basis. You know, like you're not just walking downtown and pull out your longsword and fight somebody. So maybe, maybe bring in the historical component of it and, and tap into engage people that way. Um, but also just giving people a reference point. So a lot of pre-teaching, which is a lot on an instructor, I think it will benefit in the end though. And you will have a more uh, full club, I guess you would say, like a more, um, you're, you're addressing it from all ends. Absolutely brilliant. Um, Monocle Marnie says, have to drop, but this was so enlightening. Thank you for doing these. Um, 
Thank you, Katie. Uh, we are out of time and we managed to do all our questions. Me. Yeah, you answered them brilliantly and there's so much here uh, to process uh, in a really good way. Um, and I hope to see you soon and hang out online. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. To show your appreciation, please give us a five-star review on your podcast platform or support our work by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash swordwomen. Go to at swordwomen on Instagram to see upcoming interviews or visit bythesword.net to learn about our events or visit our Facebook page, By the Sword. <laughs>